we are in week seven. I miscounted last week. This is week seven of our sermon series called Messy, Being a Jesus Community. And it's our long, slow journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And the statement that has kind of anchored our whole conversation is this. The way of Jesus is messy, but worth it. The way of Jesus is messy, but worth it. And what we're finding as we really lean into what Jesus teaches us in his ministry is that it is straight messy to say yes to the call of Jesus on our lives. But obedience to the way of King Jesus is always so worth it. I'm going to do a quick recap. And I mean, I am intentionally repeating all this stuff, man, because I don't want to forget it. Amen? I want to be transformed by the words of Jesus. And so if for no one else, I'm going to do a quick review. Is that okay? All right. So week one, we started at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, reading what we know as the Beatitudes. And we talked about how that was Jesus's way of taking everything that their culture knew and turning it upside down. And Jesus was really teaching kingdom theology in contrast with like secular theology, the cultural theology that they were living into. And Jesus was introducing the way of God's upside-down kingdom, the way in which we still live into today. Week two, we left on the same verses. We didn't go a step further. And we talked about this call as a Jesus people to maybe stop worrying about being blessed and instead shift our focus to the idea of being a blessing. We recognize that the kingdom of God, all the goodness that we think about of, of God's kingdom is here now in present day through the people of God faithfully following the way of Jesus. And so together as the people of God, week after week, day after day, we lean into the formation of the messy way of Jesus so that we might bring the kingdom of God to earth now. And then in, in week three, we talked about salt and light and, and how Jesus called ordinary people to live ordinary lives transformed and empowered by an extraordinary God. And we all said, praise God, I am ordinary. I can say yes to that. <laughs> Amen. <sighs> and then week four, we continued on and we talked about driving <laughs> and how anger is not a fruit of the spirit. And so Jesus graciously calls us to just simply pluck anger out of our lives with the Holy Spirit's power. We talked about how the way we speak about people matters because what we say does something to our hearts and it does something to their hearts and it matters whether they hear it or not. This was really where Jesus starts to call his people to love their enemies. And so we recognize that love for enemies is this radical heart shift that completely informs our actions. And so we, we swallowed the tough pill that to love our enemies means that we make decisions in their favor. 
which is just a whole nother level of faithful to the way of Jesus. Then week five, as we continued on our journey, we talked about guardrails and that that's kind of like the law, the rules that we might follow. And we talked about how guardrails are good because they keep us from having a wreck, but wouldn't it be even better if we didn't even need guardrails? And so we said guardrails are good, but heart transformation is better that we might just be so focused on following the way of Jesus rather than just avoiding a wreck. We want to be, you know, like Jeff Gordon quality drivers, not me at bumper cars. Right? (laughs) Rude. So rude. The way we speak about people matters, Pastor Mark. Love you. We talked about how in God's kingdom, verbal integrity matters. We are a people who mean what we say and do what we say. Amen? And just that simple act is one of the ways that we faithfully represent the kingdom of God. Then last week, we're almost done with ketchup. Last week, we talked about heart motive and how our motive matters. And we started to ask these questions when we're thinking about our acts of piety, the things that we do for the sake of the kingdom, prayer, fasting, giving, generosity. And we asked ourselves these questions to make sure that our motive is in line with God's kingdom and God's heart. And so we said, who gets the glory? Am I the one being a glory thief or is it truly about the kingdom of God? We ask ourselves, is there a desire in my heart to manipulate? Am I trying to manipulate a situation for my benefit? And then finally, we ask the question, who am I trying to impress? And so we humbly come before King Jesus again and we say, oh God, transform our hearts. May we take on the motives of the kingdom of God. We ended last week by stating that we do righteous acts because of who we are and whose we are. And that drives everything. Last week I promised you we would come back to the Lord's Prayer today, so that's the text. Technically, it's the same verses as last week, but smaller, (laughs) shorter. So if you're ready to receive God's word with me today, would you just stand in honor of God's word being read today? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 9 through 15. And this is what we belovingly know as the Lord's Prayer. Hear the word of our Lord, church. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, 
your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Such a beautiful prayer, and then at the end, Jesus is like, let's get serious, right? So let's unpack this very familiar prayer together. If you've been in the church ever at all, you've probably heard this prayed at one time or another. And so right off the bat, I want to make a big picture observation, and it is this. In the way of Jesus, it really is a together way. In the way of Jesus, it really is a together way. The way that Jesus simply taught us to pray emphasizes this whole concept that following the way of Jesus is something that we do together. The togetherness is essential. Let's look at a doodle from the book that we're using as a support item. What if Jesus was serious? I love this. This is a reminder that at times in American spirituality, we can really take on the posture of individualism, that it's all about me. But even in the way that Jesus prays and teaches us to pray, our Father, that true Christian spirituality is a we conversation. It's a together journey. So the Lord's Prayer opens with our Father, but then it also continues the whole prayer to use this communal, this together language. Later it says, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, right? All the language is corporate. And that tells us something really important. So some quick implications of this together language. One of the beautiful things is that this prayer has been a prayer that has anchored the church for generations. Y'all, people have been praying this since Jesus. Isn't it cool that we join that history when we pray as Jesus taught us to? So this prayer that has anchored the church for generation, it defines the journey of faith as a together journey. So therefore, this family of faith, or whatever family of faith we claim as our own, is essential to our journey. Essential. Somewhere along the way in in Christian history, we began to minimize the importance and the significance of the gathered people of God. And I think the Lord's Prayer is one of many places that says, no, 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 no. The gathered people of God is a gift and it's vital because together we are made better, we are supported, we are encouraged, we literally like represent the togetherness of God himself, which is a triune God, right? I could really get off on a tangent here, so I'm going to stop. And so we just are reminded again that this really is a together way. In fact, the prayer of Jesus assumes that we are connected. 
the very way that Jesus taught us to pray assumes that we are doing this journey of faith together. This is really a beautiful thing. Even when we pray alone, even when I pray alone, the nature of this gift of prayer is, is we are connecting ourselves to the family of God. And it's this family of God that transcends every boundary. It transcends the boundaries of nationality, ethnicity, culture, and even generational boundaries. And so even when you're alone in your home praying, you're not alone. And that's not just some ooey-gooey mumbo-jumbo that God is with you, which is true. That's not mumbo-jumbo. That's true. But when we pray, we join the people of God globally in our communion with God. And so the very nature of the way that Jesus taught us to pray is this reminder that we are a together people on a together journey. We need one another. We belong to one another. It is a gift. You are a gift to me, and I hope you think I am a gift to you. And together, we do the beautiful work of following the way of Jesus. And there's this really holy and sometimes difficult reminder that our communion with him cannot ever be separated from our communion with them. And I refer to you as them in the most loving way as possible. It just rhymed, you know? Our communion with him can never be separated from our communion with them. It really is a together way. So if, if we continue on and in verse 10, Jesus prompts us to pray words like, may your kingdom come soon, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've been kind of talking about this concept of on earth as it is in heaven throughout all of Jesus' sermon thus far. If I could summarize it in this way, I would say this. In the way of Jesus, escapism is replaced with the hope of here and now transformation. Chew on that a little bit with me. In the way of Jesus, escapism is replaced with the hope of here and now transformation. What do we mean by that? Well, don't worry, I've got another doodle for us. So, and I'm gonna ask you to leave that up on stage for a little, or on the screen for a little while. So somewhere, again, in the history of the church, we, we began to have this view that our journey with Jesus was really about hanging out until we could escape yucky earth and finally get to heaven. That was kind of, you know, we, we said things like, I'm just passing through and, and sung beautiful songs like, this world is not my home. Beautiful sentiments not super great theology. So really, Jesus' vision that he, he gives us is that actually what we're doing is rather than being escapists, where our goal is ultimately just getting out of here and hanging out in the clouds, that we're to pray all the good things of heaven to earth. 
And it's that reminder that God created us and his world to be good. And so we have this desperate inner hope and love for a good, beautiful, but broken world. And so rather than being escapists, we keep ourselves deeply rooted into the good, beautiful, but broken world that God created. And we labor on behalf of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven There was an interesting quote in What If Jesus Was Serious, and it's attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes. I think this is kind of comical. He said, some people are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. Some people are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, right? We're so caught up in our fantasy and our longing to be in heaven that we forget that God has called us in the here and now to be earthly good, right? And so, like I said, at some point in Christian history, we took on this almost discouraged and dismissive posture towards earth and became almost consumed with escaping to heaven, And there's really not a lot of precedent for this in Scripture. And even really in in greater church history, it's kind of a, a new thing that we have claimed in the church. And so rather than clinging to those sentiments of we're just passing through, we have to recognize that those thought patterns are more formative on us than we realize. It's it's a cute thing to say, and maybe it makes a good song, but that is forming something about us, right? If we stay in those thought patterns of thinking so much about heaven and not being grounded in who we are as the people of God in the here and now, we will be so shaped and formed into this escapist mentality instead of being a people who fight for the good, beautiful, but broken earth that God has called us to right now. And so that's where we find ourselves. So in this prayer, I would say this, the way that Jesus taught us to pray begs us to remain invested in his will on earth as it is in heaven. The way that Jesus taught us to pray begs us to remain invested in his will on earth as it is in heaven. Things like the flourishing of humanity and creation, order, beauty, the met needs of people who have needs, justice, life abundantly, all these good things of God's kingdom, those are the things that we are about. And we have this hope inside of us that it's possible on earth because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so we remain hopeful. But let's get real for just a second. How about that? At the same time that we are full of hope, there's also this like sobering reminder that we're like, but also none of this is fully possible until Jesus returns. 
And we've worked really hard and saw such little impact, right? We feed people and they keep needing food. And so, God, what do we do with that? We're, we're God, we totally believe that Jesus is right when he says we should pray on earth as it is in heaven. And we know we're the answer to that prayer, right? But, ugh, I don't always see it. And that gets discouraging. And that is so true. This whole conversation can be so discouraging as we labor together for the good of our neighbors, recognizing that, so, that it feels like our impact is so small. Today, I, I wanted to share with you a clip from one of my favorite podcasts. I'm, I don't listen to a ton of podcasts, but this is the podcast that I literally listen to religiously, like every time it comes out. But they, this week, had a conversation that was just a great articulation of this messy middle space where we find ourselves, uh, trying to be hopeful and also fighting discouragement. And let me give you some context before it jumps in. So the context is they're having this conversation on fear in the church. This recognition that the people of God have really taken on a sense of fear, that the world is just so bad and increasingly getting worse, and so we kind of clam up in fear. And interestingly, the statistics were comparing the difference between white churches and black churches. And the findings were just really interesting and encouraging. And so honestly, it's an opportunity for us to take a moment and learn from our African-American brothers and sisters. So I, I want to just let you guys listen to this portion of this podcast. It's also really important to say that if we're thinking more broadly about kind of theological differences over the last mm -hmm. 200 years between white and black churches, especially the last 100 years, one of those differences is even evangelicals who have been often predisposed to think things are only getting worse and worse because of mm -hmm. premillennial dispensationalism and just because in general, as you've described, we kind of have interpreted many changes as negative. A lot of that comes in the aftermath of a, a significant period at the end of the 19th and early 20th century where we thought things were going to be so much better, where it's like we're going to create the conditions of the kingdom of mm -hmm. heaven on earth and then the failure of that being really disappointing and really changing our orientation. I think it's significant that for generally speaking, and there's no one single black church, but looking at the tradition really broadly, it's been true throughout their entire existence that it wasn't really possible to think, oh, things are just getting progressively better. Because even those things that change that you described have not provided the perfect conditions under which their families are flourishing and their communities are mm -hmm. safe. And, and so there's been a lot of, of historians that have done work on this and have looked at the theology and said, some of this theology is also shaped by the fact that it was impossible for the black church to buy into either a progressive understanding of history, things just keep getting better, or a declensionist, things just keep getting worse. And actually mm -hmm. the conditions that they've been under have given them, I think like a, a truly more Christian understanding of history, which says it's always going to be a mixed bag. There's always going to be great good and great evil. And it's incredibly presumptuous of us to think that we can make grand statements about the direction mm -hmm. history is going in or whether things are worse or better as at, you know, looking at it as a whole. 
And so I think that also has given a really helpful re like set of spiritual resources to say it's never been this con this orientation that things always get better, but that hasn't been paired with, as it has in evangelicalism, this kind of sense of, oh, if, the, if I, we can't make things better and things are just getting worse, then we just don't do anything. We isolate or we are quietist or we kind of don't engage and seek justice on this earth because Jesus is just going to have to come back and fix it. It's always been paired with a, a certain amount of pessimism that we can really make things perfect on earth, that we can actually create conditions of justice by our own work with the sense that, but we have to try. Jesus said that mm -hmm. we should we mm -hmm. should care for the material needs of our neighbors, and so we're going to. And I think that's like one of the most important things for us to learn from, is it is possible to have pretty low expectations for how much we will create perfect justice on earth with a desire that for us to be faithful to Jesus means that we seek justice as best we can in the meantime. Hmm. I just found that so convicting and encouraging, just recognizing that I have a different perspective because of who I am, right? And so I'm reminded that even in this recognition that wholeness still can only fully come when Christ returns, we still continue to follow the way of Jesus, aiming for the things of God's kingdom on earth in the here and now. So we hold together this pessimistic hope, right? This reality that, yeah, our impact is limited. However, God gives us great hope that we should pray this way and that he will bring transformation. In fact, our very own lives are evidence of that transformation. Amen? And so we live kind of in this messy middle space where we go, I need to fully expect that full and total flourishing is not possible till Christ returns. And I hold on to the hope of King Jesus, whose death, burial, and resurrection makes transformation and flourishing possible. And so I stand in this messy space trying to hold these things two together on my knees saying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we love mercy, we do justice, and we walk humbly before our God. Amen, church? I, I wanted to share, um, not yet, I missed a note. So together, we resist this temptation to be escapist or to be caught up in escapism. And we lean into the hope of transformation, our own transformation and the transformation of all of creation. If we go on to verse 11, Jesus tells us to pray something like, give us today the food we need. And I'm reminded of this. The way of Jesus is one of ongoing daily dependence on God. The way of Jesus is one of ongoing, daily dependence on God. This is such a simple request in a prayer. I don't know about you. I am totally guilty of this being the one that I'm like, give us a third early bread, right? And like, bing, 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 bing. Like, keep on going past it. And so I think it's really healthy and important for, for me, somebody who opens the pantry and literally has food, 
you know, even if it's food I don't want to eat, right? I have food to stop and say, what is this simple but very important request and what are the implications of it? You know, we could take the word bread really literally and maybe that's exactly what Jesus meant. There's also this possibility that that word bread could mean the idea of anything that is required to sustain our lives. So when we pray, God, give us our daily bread, give us what we need today, where it's a prayer of asking for what I literally need to sustain my life today. But what does that even mean for us, right? We, we trust God today for what we need, and then we are invited to do the same tomorrow. Why, right, we trust God for today, and then we wake up tomorrow and we do the same. And this has some long-term impacts on the way we live. But let me read this quote from What If Jesus Was Serious. Sky Jatani, the author of that book, said this, By doing this, we reject the world's frenzied, fearful drive to accumulate and hoard. Fear drives us to seek control. Love compels us to trust. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus never hurried? Convicted. There is no record in the Gospels of Jesus rushing or worrying. He trusted that his Father would provide for him, and he expected this kind of faith from his followers. Continuing on, it said, When we live the Lord's Prayer, we learn to let go of our rushing. We learn to release our fear of not, not having enough and our striving for control. We begin to slow down, trust our Father, and discover that true life is not found in what we eat or drink or wear or drive right? Man. So really, it's this for us, those of us, again, who probably go home and open the pantry and we have enough. We have to ask ourselves, can we be content enough with God providing what we need today and trusting him fresh each morning to do the same? What I was going to share a moment ago was one of the most transformative seasons in my life. It was right before I met Pastor Mark, and he blames this year on a lot of things because it's why I rejected him the first time I met him. But I, you guys know me a little bit by now. I mean, I like fashion. I like clothes. I like jewelry. I have fun in the morning when I get up and pick out my outfit, okay? So there is a season in my life, and it's an ongoing struggle, where I recognize my temptation to get caught up in materialism. I recognize my temptation to medicate with shopping. Anybody going to testify out there? To really feel this sense that, like, I, I almost got to the place where I didn't want to wear the same outfit twice, which is still my goal. I just mix and match to try and make people think I'm buying new things. 
but I'm not. <laughs> but so I felt compelled going into, I think it was 2016, and I did an entire year sh uh, 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 sh fast from shopping. For an entire year, I did not shop. I mean, I bought food, but that was it. I didn't buy anything for myself, and I even took it so far as I cut my mom off. I was like, Mom, you cannot undercut the work of the Lord and buy me things. It was very difficult for her, too. And oh my word, church, that was ridiculously formative for me. And you may think, oh, she's just a girly girl, that's silly. But you know what? It reminded me that the things that I was finding so much identity, so much comfort, so much peace, so much joy in were not serving me at all of being a follower of Jesus that was about the business of God's kingdom. I was about the business of Jenny's wardrobe and not about taking that excess money and using it for the glory of God's kingdom. And so I share that just as like a transparent moment before you. That is a struggle of mine that I constantly have to battle. Because I never want my obsession with self to get in the way of my ability to be a generous member of God's kingdom. So I'm in the journey with you. And we're reminded that rather than storing up treasures in our closets, in our garages, we choose generosity and daily dependence. And that's not always easy. But it's so meaningful. So we pray prayers like, give us this day our daily bread. In verse 12, Jesus encourages us to pray something like, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And this can be summarized really simply as well. In the way of Jesus, a healthy soul must give and receive forgiveness. In the way of Jesus, a healthy soul must give and receive forgiveness. It's interesting that Jesus would bring this in after he talks about our need for bread. So as real as we need bread, Jesus knows that each of us need forgiveness. Y'all, first of all, we need forgiveness from God, right? But we need the forgiveness of others. And so God knew we needed forgiveness, but he also knew that we needed to extend forgiveness. This is that ongoing journey of grace that we're all on. We need God's forgiveness. We need the forgiveness of others, and we need to give that same forgiveness away to others. Y'all, I'm doing it again. I'm getting it, I'm getting it out. Okay, as we journey, perhaps 
all of this relational exchange of forgiveness from God to others receiving it, this relational flow, perhaps that is exactly what the journey of grace looks like as a together people as we follow the way of Jesus. It's really essential for the thriving of Christian community because you know what? As we journey together, we make it messy. I'm messy. You're messy. All God's people are messy. And so this concept of extending grace, receiving grace, and extending it becomes essential for this to ever be a together journey, right? Because that lack of forgiveness is what kills community. And so we choose to stay on the journey together and journey under God's umbrella of grace where we are in the constant exchange of grace. And what a gift, because we need it. Amen? Y'all are never going to look at an umbrella the same. Have another quote for you from What If Jesus Was Serious. Skajitani says this, Jesus knows that our souls need forgiveness as surely as our bodies need bread. But receiving forgiveness is not enough. A healthy soul must also give it. Holding to our anger and resentment, clinging to our identity as a victim, and refusing to release others from their debts will leave us incapable of receiving God's love or anyone else's. Guys, that last part of what he said, it, that, that's what it comes down to. To really receive God's forgiveness, we've got to be able to receive it from others and give it to others. That is part of the way that we practice receiving it from God himself. And it's also God's forgiveness that makes it possible for us to forgive others. It's this beautiful, mysterious exchange of grace. So I just have to draw our attention just briefly to those verses 14 and 15, where Jesus just, again, for you guys, dropping it like it's hot, Jesus said... If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I just wonder if Jesus' words there are actually a lot more gracious than what I read them. Right? I read them and I'm like, I am going straight to H-E double hockey sticks. Right? But I wonder if what Jesus is actually saying is, y'all, we've got to figure out this exchange of grace because that is how we receive all the goodness of God's grace to us is by sharing it with one another. Maybe Jesus really is just as dead serious about this. Maybe it's both. But I just wonder... If the whole point of us journeying together, extending grace, receiving grace, isn't the tangible practice 
of us receiving the good grace of our Father. Just like taking the body and blood of Jesus is a tangible reminder of the gift of grace that we receive, so this journey of together grace reminds us of the ongoing gift of grace from God. So, all that to say, forgiveness is essential for thriving. Forgiveness is essential for thriving. Man, and you can see this practically in people's lives, right? When unforgiveness is there, people are miserable, right? And so, the way that Jesus teaches us to pray also draws us back to another practice in the church that at times, the evangelical church, so that which I've given my life to, we, we struggle with. And, and when I study the way of Jesus, it convicts me that we've got to find a way to return to some really healthy practices that have been a part of the church. And that's this. Followers of the way of Jesus make space for confession of sin. Followers of the way of Jesus make space for confession of sin. And here's my confession. Are you ready? I am not 100% sure what that's supposed to look like today. I don't feel like the, the church today, particularly our brand, the evangelical church has found a great way to live into lives of confession. But you know what? I'm asking God for wisdom. What does it look like for us to be people who confess our sins? You know, Ash Wednesday is a great time yearly where we practice this. But y'all, I don't feel like once a year is enough for me. Maybe for you guys. And so we are a people who confess. We, we, we are, I am in the process of asking God, what does it look like for us to make space in our messy journey together to confess our sins to one another and help each other along this journey of grace following the way of Jesus? Because I think there's reason to believe, by the way, Jesus taught us to pray that confessing our sins has a place in our journey of faith together. And that is messy. But in the way of Jesus, a healthy soul must give and receive forgiveness. And then in verse 13, kind of the final stanza that Jesus teaches us to pray is this, and don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Probably the version of the Lord's Prayer that you've memorized says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I feel like we could go really deep theologically or we could just simplify it. You want the simplified version? I do. In the way of Jesus, we own our ongoing need for guidance. In the way of Jesus, we own our ongoing need for guidance. I read this as I was preparing, uh, and it was a phrase, it went like this. Lead me because I cannot lead myself. 
Perhaps that's the way that the Lord's Prayer comes out of my mouth as I pray this. Lead me, Lord, because I cannot lead myself. And I think the heart of what Christ is leading us to pray is is like, left to my own willpower, I will likely drift onto a path that is not best for me or best for others and for sure not good for the kingdom of God. But fully surrendered every day to the guidance of God's spirit. This prayer of Jesus tells me that I can avoid evil and I can walk the way of Jesus. And so Jesus wraps up the way that he teaches us to pray, calling us to pray prayers something like, lead me because I cannot lead myself. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and prepare to lead us into a time of reflection. So Jesus' prayer pattern teaches us a lot. You know what? You could, I'm sure the, the many pastors in this room have done such a thing. You could take like 10 weeks on that prayer alone and just really allow the Lord's prayer to seep deep within our souls. But today, I felt just compelled to remind us through the pattern that Jesus teaches us that we are on a together journey. That we reject escapism and we lean into that hope for transformation in the here and now. We have a deep love for God's good, beautiful, but broken earth. We're reminded of our ongoing daily dependence on God for everything. We remember that forgiveness is essential for thriving. That we need to be confessing our sins to one another as a part of healthy community. And that we know we need daily guidance from King Jesus. And so as we go into this time of reflection... What do you need today? As we sit in the presence of God, as we hear the words of the Lord's Prayer, what do you need? These altars are open as places of remembrance where we come before the Lord and surrender and call upon his name. I'm going to invite you to stand and as we go into our time of reflection, it is, it is only fitting for us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Before Pastor Mark leads us, we'll pray this prayer together and then I will pray over our time of reflection. I've modernized it just a tiny bit, but hopefully we'll slow down and read it and let it be fresh today. But church, would you join me in praying the way that King Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Oh God, hear your people. As we pray the way that Jesus taught us. As this together community, we recognize our daily dependence upon you. We resist the urge to get so caught up in what is to come that we forget about the good, beautiful, but broken world we are in. And so we lean into that prayer that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We cling to hope for transformation. We confess, we forgive, and we receive your forgiveness. And God, we come before you and we say, lead us because we cannot lead ourselves. So God, as we kneel before you today, as we humble our hearts, we say, come Holy Spirit, show us what we need and give us the boldness to be able to reach out and grasp what you have right in front of us. May we leave transformed by your Holy Spirit. In the mighty name of King Jesus, I pray.